A couple of weeks back, an unknown rescuer saved the life of a one-year-old little boy on a New York subway train station. What happened was that the little boy was strapped in his stroller that his mum had parked on the platform, but she forgot to put the brake on the stroller before turning away to look after her other three children. To the horror of onlookers, a sudden gust of wind blew the stroller onto the tracks just as an oncoming train was pulling into the station. Everyone was frozen in shock except for a a mystery rescuer who jumped onto the tracks in front of the train, scooped the little boy up, stroller and all, and saved him, but then who melted back into the crowd. No one knows who he was. Now that rather dramatic news event of a rescuer rushing out of the crowd only to disappear back into the crowd, it's actually not a bad image of what is happening in this morning's passage from Isaiah. A mystery person suddenly appears out of the text and then suddenly disappears back into it. All within the context of a rescue mission happening. See, if you were here last week, you might remember that Isaiah spoke words of comfort to Israel last week so as to reassure Israel that a rescue was coming in the future. God wanted them to know that despite a time of punishment coming, God wanted them to know that after the punishment, things were going to get better, spectacularly better. Their sins will have been paid for, their hard service will be over, they'll be rescued, they'll be set free. God himself was coming to get them. Do you remember all that? Last week, words of comfort about good things that were coming in the future. Well, now this week... An intriguing, mysterious person, simply referred to by God in verse 1 as my servant. This servant appears out of nowhere and plays a really important role in these future plans of rescue that God has. But then after just the nine verses we heard read, he simply disappears back into the book and it goes on to other things. He will reappear a few more times in what are often called the servant songs. But each time it's the same. He appears without warning and then he's gone again. Really is like a rescuer rushing out of the crowd and then vanishing back into the crowd. A really important rescuer. Because he doesn't just come to save a toddler on a train station. He rushes out of the crowd to save us. Well, let's see how, by thinking about today's passage under the headings of what this servant does, how he goes about doing it, and then finally we'll give some thought as to who this servant might be. Although I suspect some of you have got a few clues about who it turns out to be, but we'll get to that. Firstly, what exactly does this servant do? Well, here the key word to notice is justice. Look at verse 1 again. Here is my servant. See, bang, here he is on the scene. Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Look at the final phrase of verse 3. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. And verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. 
Three times we are told that this servant will bring justice. And by the word justice, Isaiah's got a much bigger thing in mind than simply fair play or or, or honesty. When Isaiah talks about justice, he's actually referring to the entire way that the universe should be. He's referring to the order and the pattern that God wants the world to have. Justice here is literally the right way. It's the correct way that all creation should be. And so when verse 1 says that this servant's task is to bring justice, it's actually a gigantic mission. This is nothing less than putting God's plans for the world into full effect so that everything, everything in life is as it should be, as God would want it to be. That's why you'll notice that it's stressed that this servant will bring justice, not just just to Jerusalem, but verse 1, to all the nations. Verse 4, this servant is on about establishing justice on the entire earth. And his law, and in his law, the islands will put their hope. That phrase, the islands, it's one of Isaiah's favourite phrases for referring to all the world, all the different nations, all the different countries. In other words, what this servant will do is establish God's order and justice everywhere. He will establish and institute God's purposes everywhere. He's going to set up the truth about God everywhere. He's going to accomplish God's plan everywhere. No more shooting massacres in America. No more violence at King's Cross. No no more domestic abuse. No more break-ins. No more terrorism. Everything everywhere, just the way God wants it to be. That is a very big to-do list. And if that's not enough, look at how this servant's going to go about doing it. Verse 2, for example, says that he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A broken reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, this servant will achieve this extraordinary mission gently and graciously. He's not going to be overbearing. He's not going to throw his weight around. He's not going to bully people. A bruised reed he's not even going to break. Verse 3 also says that he'll be faithful and steadfast in his mission. He will not falter. He will not be discouraged. He will not turn away from the task. But then in verse 5, this is where we really get to the bottom line of how this servant's going to go about his mission, as God himself speaks directly to the servant. This is what the Lord, sorry, this is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, he who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, he who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Verse 7 on the way through, there's a lovely verse that describes this servant's work as helping the blind see and releasing captives. It's imagery that's picking up on last week. 
of people being released from the prison of sin, of people being set free from their punishment because sin has been paid for and eyes have been opened to the goodness of God. But more to the point, look at how this servant's going to achieve this mission because he's going to do it by God himself, the God who created the heavens and the earth, God himself having a deep, intimate, hands-on involvement with this servant. This This servant and God sound like they are virtually inseparable. Verse 6 says that God himself will call him. God himself will take hold of his hand. God himself will keep him. God himself will make him to be a light even for the Gentiles. In fact, we could even go back and roll in verse 1 where God has already said that he's going to put his own spirit on him. Like, who the heck is this guy? This servant is huge. He bursts onto the scene without warning, but he has appeared with a magnitude that it is almost impossible to overstate because his mission is no less than establishing God's plans and purposes for all the earth, justice everywhere, and he will do it gently, unfalteringly, and with apparently unlimited access to and involvement with the Lord God himself. Who is this guy? Can you possibly think of anyone who would fit the description? Well, the Jews actually couldn't. This was, this was a big puzzle for them. And you can't really blame them because it's not at all clear from within Isaiah who this servant is. Especially because either side of this morning's reading about this servant in whom God delights, either side of this passage are other passages all about Israel being God's servant. See, look, for example, at the previous chapter, chapter 41. Look at verse 8. But you, O Israel, my servant... Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Very clearly in that section, Israel are referred to by God as his servant. And yet... They don't sound like the servant we've just been thinking about in the next chapter, chapter 41. I mean, the servant in whom God delights, let's, let's call him servant, capital S. Capital S servant, remember, will not falter or be discouraged. But just here in the previous chapter, faltering and discouraged is exactly what Israel are. That's why God needs to encourage them by telling them not to be afraid. Down in verse 13, God says to them, Do not fear, I'll help you. Don't be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. That's not sounding like capital S servant. But then again, over the other side of today's reading, at the end of chapter 42 this time, God again starts to talk to Israel about them being his servant. But again, it doesn't sound like the servant we've just been thinking about. Chapter 42, verse 18. Hear you deaf, look you blind and see who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I sent. Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? 
You have seen many things but have paid no attention. Your your ears are open but you hear nothing. Once again, it sounds like Israel are being referred to as God's servant here, but it doesn't sound like the capital S servant that we've just been thinking about. He wasn't blind towards God. He's actually going to be used by God to open the eyes of the blind. You're starting to see why this capital S servant was such a puzzle for Israel in the Old Testament. Here we are in a big section in which God repeatedly refers to Israel as his servant, yet right in the middle of it, out of the crowd, rushes capital S servant, who is very un-Israel-like in his appearance. So who is he? Well, for literally hundreds of years, the Jews would sit around reading Isaiah and just scratching their heads. Got no idea. Who this servant? A massive problem, massive puzzle. But that's the thing about puzzles, isn't it? Once you know the answer to them, often they are so obvious, aren't they? And so it is that in the New Testament, the gospel writers almost fall over themselves in the rush to tell us they know the answer to the puzzle. And so, for example, look with me at this passage in Matthew chapter 12. I've put it on the screen so that you can keep your Bibles uh, open in Isaiah because we wanna, I want to jump back into Isaiah. But just for a moment, look at this passage with me. It happens in Matthew just after Jesus has made the Pharisees really angry at him by healing people in, on the Sabbath. Ooh, they, they've actually got so angry with him that they're, going to, uh, they're plotting to kill Jesus. And we read in verse 15, Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And you see what's coming? Here is my servant whom I have chosen. The one I love in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Matthew quotes this morning's passage from Isaiah about the servant in whom God delights and he applies it directly to Jesus Christ so as to tell us he's the one. Capital S, servant, he's here. And he's doing exactly what Isaiah said he would do. And so even in the midst of heated opposition from the Pharisees trying to kill him, Jesus is seen as the unfaltering servant who avoids confrontation and quietly, in tranquility and gentleness, simply withdraws and quietly goes on about his work, healing people. And by doing that, a wave of expectancy and excitement just rushes through the Gospels. Here is the servant. Here is the one who will gently, unfalteringly and with unlimited access with God himself. Here is the one who's going to establish justice in all the earth. Here is the one in whose name all nations can look to for hope to be free from their sin. 
And it is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as Alan's been already reminding himself. Everything always is. That's what we've seen time and time. and t- It's a bit like a broken record through Isaiah, isn't it? Everything we've seen through this epic book, all the way through God's big plan to transform the world, as more and more detail gets added to the plan. Last week it was sins paid for and God himself coming for his people. This week it's the sudden appearance, the sudden importance of this mysterious servant. All roads keep running to Jesus Christ. All roads. So what do we do with that? How should we respond to again seeing the importance of Jesus in God's plans? Well, I hope he's important in your plans for a start. And there's lots of things we could really say about, uh, uh, about what we should be doing at this point. But I think back in Isaiah chapter 42 back there, I think he actually tells us what we should be doing as a first instance. Because back towards the end of our reading again now, hopefully you've still got your Bibles open in Isaiah, at the end of the reading in verse 9, just at the end where God is still talking to his servant, God says in verse 9, See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. In other words, God is saying that this appearance of the servant, it is a new thing that he's declaring. This is a new revelation. Within the context of Isaiah, we haven't heard about him before. This is a new development within God's plan to transform the world. And so therefore, Isaiah now chips in and tells us, the reader, exactly what we should do as a result of hearing this new thing. Verse 10, we'll sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in it. See what Isaiah is saying there? In the light of this new development in God's big plan to transform the world, well then, sing a new song about this new thing. In the light of the appearance of this servant, sing about him. Give praises to God for him. Which I take it is more than simply singing a song about Jesus at the end of our meeting this morning. Though that will be a very nice thing to do. I take it what Isaiah is really getting at here is that as a result of what this servant is on about in response to this a servant's appearance, a deep sense of rejoicing and praise and celebrating really should just sweep through our lives. You know, don't just put a whoopee smile on your face and pretend everything in life's fine. He's not talking about that. Some things in life aren't fine and they're genuinely hard and frustrating. But nevertheless, what God is saying today about his servant, what God is telling us about Jesus today, we should still sing about that. Because what we've discovered about Jesus today and establishing God's plans, that that actually puts everything else into perspective in life. I mean, that's the thing about perspective. It can be very deceiving. Take the sun in the sky, for for example. The sun is a massive ball of nuclear reactions. One million times the volume of the earth and evidently it produces every second enough power to power our entire world for about 500,000 years. And yet something as massive as that can be just blocked out of our sight altogether by a five-cent coin. 
if you hold it close enough to your face. And there are some things in life that we just hold way too close. Our hobbies, our sport, our job, our finances, our relationships. They've all got their place. They've all got their right perspective. But sometimes we just hold them so close that they block everything else out. And, when, and, and therefore when one of them starts to go a little haywire, it becomes all-consuming to us because that's all we're seeing. And it can disproportionately drain out the bigger perspective and the wider joy that we should have because of a passage like this morning. Because in today's passage, Isaiah is putting things back into perspective. A friends, a servant has appeared on the scene. A rescuer has burst out of the crowd for us. And he brings justice to the nations. And he opens the eyes of the blind. And he frees the captives from the prison of sin. And nothing in all this world can take that away. And so we sing to the Lord a new song. We sing his praises from the ends of the earth. Well, some people reckon Dubbo is about the ends of the earth. We should sing. Let me pray first. Father, thank you for your servant, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the way he does fulfill all your purposes and plans and that he was your servant who unswervingly, gently, graciously achieved your purposes in saving us from our sin, opening our eyes to your glory. Father, we thank you. And Lord, we long for the day when we will know all of this in full, when you will wrap up this current creation and usher in your new one. We long for that day. But until it comes, Father, help us to persevere, help us to keep perspective and grant us the deep joy that comes from you and comes from knowing about your Son. Amen.